Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. So over on Josh's rack, the uh, the stereo racks here, they're 19-inch, like, regular, I guess, server racks. We love Josh's rack. <laughs> um, he's got this Space Echo, and I, we've talked about this a couple times, I don't think on the podcast, but beforehand. Um, and fortunately, it's broken, but uh, Josh will actually let us take it apart and fix it, and so maybe we should do, uh, like, a, maybe a live... A live podcast of us fixing it, or to record us re- oh, fixing this thing. I'm sure. But uh, the cool thing is, Josh actually has a digital plug-in on his computer that will make us sound like what the Space Echo does. Um, and I guess we're going to be a little goofy here and just basically say some sci-fi nonsense and have it have it uh, regurgitate what it would sound like. <laughs> so uh, just give us a sign, Josh, when it's running. Alright, so he says it's on now. Um, we can't actually hear what it's sounding like, but... Uh, <laughs> um, so, so this is actually perfect. This is, this is a double-blind test of Space Echo. Yeah, Space Echo. Monster Jam. <laughs> um, spe- oh, what was, that thumb was up? what was that thumbs up for, Josh? Oh, okay. This is space, space Echo Capture. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Are we still recording? Indeed. Okay. <laughs> so, Stephen. Uh, so, Stephen, um, what have you been working on this week? Well, we got uh, we finally got our, our shipment of new tubes in. Uh, yeah, the uh, new tube. New. Um, it's both with the NU. So, when you, if they came, who uh, it was um, Korg? Korg? Korg uh, makes yeah. them. Well, yes, Korg. I guess they well, originated Noritake. Noritake. So why Japan. is it called Neo Tube? Neo? Yeah, it's, it's a Japanese tube. <laughs> <laughs> I'm confused. Well, you uh, like Neo Tokyo and all that stuff. Is this like some kind of strange anime or something like that? Well, no, it's just like all in like you know futuristic stuff. It's like Neo New York and Neo whatever. <laughs> so it's kind of like New New York. Honestly, the whole, like, new craze crap was, like, mid to late 90s, so they're pretty far behind <laughs> on the on Well, they the did game. spell it slightly different. Well, I'm thinking of, like, the, the new metal with Linkin Park and, and oh, stuff yeah. like that. That was Or like, in, like, Futurama, New 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 York. But was that spelled N-U? No, it's, it's, it's N-E-W. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it's, it's two news. It, regardless, it's not a good name for that. Well, okay. The, the the official name is Six P One, and I I assume they just felt that that was kind of boring, and no one would know what it is. That's not a really long part number. With tubes, you don't need to because you're not competing against other part numbers. <laughs> it's not like a sixteen character part number for like a capacitor, or ICs that just get insane. Yeah. So yeah, again, uh, back on topic slightly. <laughs> uh, so what 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 have you found so far with these new tubes? Um, okay, so we got we we got nine individual new tubes and one evaluation board, mm-hmm. uh, and the it looked like the, what we got was 
some engineering samples because some of the things look like they've been kind of tampered with or partially used. Yeah, partially used. One of the one of the little daughter boards that connects to the evaluation board had clearly been soldered before and unsoldered. Uh, the pads look a little bit rough. Yeah, they look a little rough, and there's actually uh, flux residue on the hassle finish. Yeah. At so first, I thought it was hassle finish, but yeah, it's got flux residue on it. So it's kind of annoying. You would expect that, you know, with an eval board, you can just take one of these units and plug it right into the eval board. No, you have to solder it to a daughter board, and then that daughter board plugs in. I don't know why they chose that. Yeah, I don't know either. But whatever. You I know. bet you because that the new tubes don't actually have a hundred mil spacing for the yeah. pins. Yeah. And I bet you that was cheaper than putting in a lots, custom header, custom or, header, or, or or headers in the right spots, so to speak. Yeah. Also, you uh, know, they, it, it wouldn't be an Arduino compliant header. <laughs> That's a jab at the fifty mil spacing on the Arduino. Right. For those that don't know. <laughs> so well, and and the thing is, it's in, it's in a VFD package, and it only has pins on one side, so they probably didn't want it flapping around, just being held by yeah, one, one side of the. It, I I get it. It just seems a little odd. You know, I haven't actually seen a VFD that size. I guess I need to look at Nortaki's site and see if they make something that small. They are a lot smaller than I thought they would be. Yeah, not yeah. thickness wise, but XY wise, they're a it's lot smaller. One one. 175 by about 0.63. Yeah, it re- it reminds me of a uh like a uh a, a 6507 um CPU chip out of an Atari. Yep. It's about that about that right size. Yeah. Uh that's what and, it reminds, it's a large dip chip. And and Parker had an actual VFD on his desk. Yeah. Uh what, what what size is that? That thing is a like an inch and a half by Almost six inches, seven inches. Yeah, it's a giant um, forty by four character display. I actually, have it right here in this box. But yeah, so I uh, I looked at the internals of both of these, and they're identical, absolutely the identical. Construction. Except, uh, okay, so so uh, on the if you if you look through the glass at the very top, there's a tiny wire that crosses over where the displays are, and that's that's your heater or your your filament. Filament. And then the part that actually glows would be the the anode. Mm-hmm. And the only difference in this tube is that there's a mesh screen in between the two. That's yep. it. So, yeah. Um, it's still very interesting how they turn that VFD technology into more of a tube, a transistor-based technology, I guess. Well, they didn't have to reinvent the wheel or really, now that I look at it, they probably didn't even have to retool their uh, machines very much because they just install one extra thing mm-hmm. and it's done. Yeah. Um. And you got something here about a uh, 100 mega ohm current source. So uh, these tubes are not very good. Their specifications are pretty bad, and they have really high output impedance. Uh, I found in a book that I have a constant current source that uh, has a an output impedance of 100 mega ohm all the way up to about 10 kilohertz, and then it drops to like 10 mega ohm all the way up to 20 kilohertz. So, and you said this is a chart. Sorry, what, what, what is this? Is this a chart? Uh, it's it's actually in a book that I have. What's that book? Uh, it's called uh, "Designing Hi-Fi Preamps" by Merlin Blenkow. Is there an edition for that or uh, first? First edition. Yeah. Is it it's, signed by the author? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that guy's books. His books are awesome. In fact, it just released in February. 
Cool. Um, so we'll, I'll, I'll be posting some uh, information on that circuit. The cool thing about it is if you use one of these things with a tube like we have here, you actually negate effectively all of your uh, resistance for your, your anode. And the, the gain of the circuit that you have reduces down to the inherent gain of the tube. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, yeah. Th these tubes have a gain of 14 times. And in a typical circuit with just resistors and caps, you'd be lucky to get about eight out of that. If you use one of these constant current sources, you can get about 13.99 times gain. Almost 100%. Almost 100%, yeah. Cool. So, yeah, I'll be posting uh, the schematic for that and uh, and some info on it. Is that going to be done by tomorrow morning? Yeah. Cool. That way it will be in the blog post for yep. this uh, podcast. Neat. Um, and then I've been working on what we've codenamed the Jig of Destiny. Um, we always have to have cool names for the stuff we work on at Macrofab. Mm -hmm. And uh, essentially it's a jig or a fixture that will hold our giant 16 by 16 prototype panels. So for those that don't know, at Macrofab, we have very low volume pricing uh, for our uh, prototype runs. Right. And how we do that is we basically batch all the prototypes into one giant panel. Um, basically, because that way you can spread out the tooling cost over the entire... Yeah, every, uh, everyone shares. Yeah, everyone shares the tooling cost instead of having to, uh, you know, hit someone with a $200 tooling charge. You spread that over, you know, 10 or 12 people. And that's how you get the prototypes really low. It's the secret cost. sauce. The secret sauce. So anyways, the problem with these giant panels is when they go through reflow, they tend to bow Bad. a lot. Like you're yeah. talking like four inches of deflection. Yeah. And so what we typically do is that's normally uh, for single sided boards. It's not a problem because you run it on the mesh conveyor in the reflow oven. So it's actually the whole board is supported. Right. But the problem is when you do two sided assembly, you have to support the board completely in the air uh, to prevent um, the parts basically being ripped off in when you when you heat the uh, backside up to liquid estate again. Mm -hmm. And so what this jig does is allow it allows support uh, in the middle during that process. Yeah. Um, and I actually made a uh, prototype out of open beam which is a 10 millimeter by 10 millimeter profile extrusion, kind of like uh, 8020 or Misumi or a bunch of other... Adult know. director sets. Yeah, adult director sets. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's a very small version of it. Yeah. And I was able to make a, a uh, fixture out of that and ran it through the reflow, and it worked great. Awesome. Um, and so I basically I made a version of it that's a lot more precise. Mm -hmm. um, basically, the entire bottom is actually going to be milled out of uh, 3 16th aluminum. And the top plates would be made out of 16th inch aluminum, which is the typical thickness of a PCB. Yeah. And uh, because of everything would be machined on one, one plane, so to speak, um, the tooling holes would be in the correct spots. I pretty much had to eyeball it with my open beam version. Right. Uh, I was surprised that everything fit really well well in the in the the border around our our pcbs we're, we're putting holes yes. such that this this panel aligns on the jig yeah and it it's real easy to install Yeah, basically the entire panel sits into these tooling holes and then there's pins that are adjustable uh in between that you can slide them around and then lock them in place and so those hold up the middle of the boards right right because there's cutouts in between all of the boards so we need to have adjustable standoffs yes uh 
and I hopefully in the next week or two I'll get the uh, machine parts back and I'll be able to put them together and see if it works and it works we'll order like probably 12 10 12 jigs for that and then I'm going to work on a version that's adjustable this mm. one's just for 16 by 16 and then uh, but we have other panel sizes for for higher volume um, projects and stuff and, yeah. and isn't the goal for this to be able to go through all of our machines? Yeah, so it has to be able to go through the My 500 Pace Jetter, it has to go through the My 200 Pick and Place, and it has to go through Reflow. Right. And so that way, you the first operation in assembly is to put it into the fixture. Yeah. Um, it's a good way to, to indicate, hey, this thing is ready to go. Yep. We put it on the jig, and you know where it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's really going to help out with... with uh, um, it's also great when if you have parts on the backside and you have to do like hand placements on a board, it actually raises the board up and it keeps the board level. Yeah, on your desk. So, I mean, it's gonna be pretty cool. Um, they uh, operation seems to, seem to really like the uh, open beam version mm -hmm. with its slightly out of tolerance pins and stuff, and they <laughs> actually really liked it. Yeah. So hopefully this version, the new version, works really good. Yeah. Cool. Uh, it works really well, I should say. And then I got, um, I think on the last podcast or the podcast before that, I talked about this um, fan controller I'm designing for my Jeep. Yeah. And I actually got it today. Cool. Um, it ended up on my desk today <laughs> uh, <laughs> since I, I work at MacroFab. So I don't have to have shipping. <laughs> it's kind of nice. Yeah, it's kind of nice. You know, I wonder if we can get the developers to put, um, we can have custom shipping locations and so you can type in like parker's desk or or steven's desk <laughs> <laughs> i think the developers would look at us like uh no <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyways i got it today um so far all i've done was power it up and it took about 60 milliamps uh at 12 volts which is about what i was expecting and uh but the interesting thing I noticed was I was measuring the voltages on the rails, and I noticed a 0.03 volt drop from the power supply mm -hmm. to the choke that I have on, on the power input. Okay. And at first, I thought it was the power choke problem. Yeah. And then we ran some numbers. So do you want to explain the numbers that we ran? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we started taking some measurements. We wanted to see what is this 0.03, so 30 millivolt drop. Yes. Where's that coming from? So our power supply indicated that it was spitting out 12.01. Yes, and we and actually we, measured, we measured that with at the terminals. And we measured it with our, our uh, uh, multimeter, and it yeah. was 12.01. 12.01. But then if you if you look at the input to your board, it's reading 11.98. Yes. Uh, so start putting th uh, two and two together. You got 60 milliamps worth of draw. Mm -hmm. The only thing in between the two sections that we measured was... The, wires. The wires that went there. And these were banana wires, right? Yeah, banana oh, wires. One side is banana. Yeah, one side's banana in the power supply, and the other side are the little test clips. Yeah, the little, like, springy finger clips. Yeah, things. finger clips. With the no, little not, on the not the alligators. No. But the little spring clips, which are awesome. I love those things. Um, when they're brand new, they're awesome. Yeah, they, well, you gotta, you gotta be a little ginger with them. Yeah, when, the, when that clip in, uh, wears out, it they just throw them away. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so we got we got sixty milliamps and a, a thirty millivolt drop uh across those wires, which indicates uh half a day, uh, an ohm of resistance. Yes. Uh that we're seeing in between there. But that's across two wires. 
So each wire would be 250 milliohms worth of resistance. Mm -hmm. And looking at these wires, they're somewhere in the 13, 14 gauge range. Uh, I think so, yeah. And, uh, and so if you, if you look at how many ohms per foot or ohms per inch that has, it sort of doesn't seem to work out because these are... Uh, About three feet long. Two, yeah, two to three feet long, somewhere in that range. And uh, you'd be looking more in the range of a couple of milliohms worth of resistance mm -hmm. for the whole cable, but we're seeing 250. Yep. So we came to a conclusion in there. Um, well, actually, if, if, you, if you look at it in terms of what gauge wire would be required in order to actually be 250 milliohms, it would be 33 gauge wire. Yeah, it'd be really thin and that stuff. Would, that, that's like magnetic wire in a transformer. That's, and that's clearly not it. So it has to be something else. Yes. So we're assuming that it has to do with the actual clip itself. Yeah, the actual clip, the spring, or the contact for the clip onto the test point, or something right, like that. Right, there could is... be some grime in there. Yeah. Just, uh, so, so it creeps in a little bit. Yeah. You know, if you start pulling a bit more, you can actually drop enough voltage to make a difference. Yeah, um, it's something to think about when you're doing uh, tests for your uh, devices and stuff, because we even saw this with... Uh, um, basically crappy USB ports. I think we talked about this last week, did we? Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember if we did. But we were doing a lot of tests with some uh, USB ports and pulling you know, more than basically close to the max of USB 2.0 power, which is uh, half an amp. Yeah. Getting close to that and seeing how much does a USB port dip down. And it depends on the computer. Like right. the, the, front com the front ports on my really uh, old desktop they can barely even supply 100 milliamps yeah. before you start dipping below the standard, which is plus minus um, a quarter of a volt, um, which is actually a lot, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> plus minus a quarter volt, so you can be 4.75 volts or 5.25 volts within spec. Yeah, and it's it, pretty wide. And actually, the interesting thing about USB 2.0 voltage spec, yeah. it doesn't have a ripple spec. Really? So your ripple can be a half volt. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess, honestly, I guess they're probably just making it easy for people to do it cheaply. Yeah, cheap case. stuff. And well, that just uh, it means that your supply can be cheap, but your device has to be robust enough to be able to handle a half volt ripple on its on its supply line. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of uh, rejection you have to do. So I guess I guess the moral of the story is here here is don't just assume a wire is is just, you know, zero nothing, ohms. Yeah, zero ohms. Yeah. In fact, I have an interesting story about that. I was, I was working uh, on an amp a while back and I, um, I had the speaker pulled out from it. And instead of, you know, soldering the speaker terminals back, cause this was one of those kind of amps, I just alligator clipped it in. And I noticed that my bias in my output section was going crazy. It was all whacked out. Uh, and it took me forever to figure out the issue. And I eventually got to the point where I measured the resistance of the alligator clips and they were about an ohm and a half each, but so if you're talking three, ohm. three ohms, but it was a four ohm speaker. So my entire output <laughs> yeah, you is, doubled is, is doubled effectively now. And the output section of the amp did not like that. Uh, so, so do not. And, and, and I actually, what's interesting is I, I took apart those alligator clips. I actually clipped the end and, uh, you the from the the size of the jacket the diameter of the jacket you'd expect a pretty significant amount of copper in there no there was like 
an angel hair strand of copper. So it had it had like a it had like ten kilovolts of isolation on the on the on the uh, jacket, huh? Yeah, and a gnome and a half of resistance. <laughs> it was worthless. I threw all of them away. You know what? I wonder if we should take those uh, test clips and actually cut them. Sure. I mean, they're made by uh, was it Electra something? It's a it's a company that makes supposedly good basically power clips and stuff. You can buy them on Amazon, which is what we did. I would. D- we should go look to see if they have a data sheet and if they call out the contact and spring resistance. Yeah. That would be fun. Yeah. We should, we'll, we'll report back next uh, podcast on that stuff. Cool. And so we'll be going into the uh, RFO section. Sounds good. And this time we got a, a lot more content. There was a lot more interesting things this week to yeah. talk about. Um, one of my favorite articles was uh, Bolt.io. They had this cool article about... Well, what they called the mystifying hardware jargon, and Josh might actually like this one. <laughs> we have fifteen pages of, yeah. <laughs> of jargon, manufacturing, and some of its business, some of its hardware, technical hardware, technical, uh, acronyms and jargon. Yeah. So um, I had uh, Stephen go through it. Yeah. And pick out things that he that caught his eye that were interesting. So, so first of all. Uh, on Josh on is leaning the, in, by the way. He's <laughs> the uh, the third page, the very first entry on the third page is cogs. I love the word cogs. Cogs. Co- cogs is great. It's it's nothing special. Uh, and, and it reminds me of the Jetsons. Yeah, and it stands for cost of goods sold. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's the bill of materials of bill of materials. Yes. It's the at the end of the day, add everything up: labor, parts the the air conditioning add it all up what is the absolute end dollar that you spend that's your cog and so bolt io says it's the uh cogs is a bomb plus which is what you just said uh-huh um includes labor freight uh logistics customs duties blah 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 yeah stuff that you don't think about right taxes the it's it's the end of the day if you know your cog it's it's a, it's a, it's a, um, you can have a sigh of relief because that means you did all of your homework. Exactly. Everything. Everything. And actually on this same page, um, I'm going to, it says, uh, POC, which is proof of concept. <laughs> um, I don't think that's a real acronym. I've never heard that before. POC. Oh, actually reading through this, there's a lot of things that we say that, I mean, they, they, they break them down into, uh, you know, acronyms and things like that. And I was like, I've never heard any of these said as an acronym. Same thing with EVT, Engineering Validation Test. I've never heard that before. Yeah. I would say that's something you probably would use in, like, FCC CE testing. But I've done that before, and I've never heard EVT. Or maybe it's written on the, the documents or, any, or something like that. Maybe. It's possible. Yep. So what's your next one? Let me let me sift through. Oh, oh wait, next page. Next page. MP mass production. Oh really? That, that's not an acronym. That, no, the you gotta have three to be an acronym, right? <laughs> Is that the gummy the macrofab rule? Oh oh, here's one that I actually didn't know. Okay. Gift what? box. That's an acronym? No, it's not an acronym. Um, it's under, gosh, what's the section it's under? What page is Fulfillment, it? Fulfillment, maybe? Oh, I see it. I, I got uh, it. Supply now. chain and logistics. Okay. A gift box. Apparently, a gift box is just the thing that your your product comes in. So just what your customer gets at the end? The, no, it's it's the box. So when Amazon sends you something, 
It's the box they send it in. But so, but they, but the jargon is gift box. So gift box, final individual box a customer receives. Gift boxes, uh, gift boxes mostly commonly refer to retail packaging, uh-huh. but can also refer to generic gift boxes from things like Amazon worry free. Oh no, it's not. It's not the actual box because they're saying Amazon's uh, worry free packaging. So well, like that's 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 like you can check mark a gift wrap option. No, because I mean, look at look at the look at the image they have up at the top of the page. It's not a gift wrapping. It's it's a GoPro in its box, and they oh, call yeah, it the yeah. gift box. You're right. So it's Interesting. just whatever it comes in. I mean, I, I guess it would like you wouldn't call. Um, let's say you got an Arduino in that like official Arduino box. That's the gift box. That's the gift box. Yeah. Not the not USPS box that came from Adafruit in. Right. Gotcha. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that, that that was a... And you know what? I don't think I need to know that. <laughs> oh, uh, and then on uh, page 10 of 15, this is still logistics, LTL. LTL? Less than truckload. Less than truckload. It basically means if you don't have enough to ship a full truckload, you have less than a truckload. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's obvious. Yeah. So, yeah, some of these are a little bit ridiculous. I was really hoping for FTL. Uh, what? Faster than light. Faster than light. <laughs> <laughs> some of these are ridiculous. Um, by the way, this is actually a very good article to read uh, yeah. for those starting out. It gets a lot of jargon. Some of this jargon, is, as, as we've shown, is, is a little silly. Yeah. Um, oh, I went and picked the ones that are just like, really? Yeah. Um, but some of them are pretty good. Like GM. It's not General Motors. General it's, Manager? It's, no, gross margin. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, that makes sense. And you know what? We've only picked that like maybe five, and this list is 15 pages long. Yeah. They could have just dropped out those five that are just complete BS. Yeah. And it wouldn't is, have Is BS art. one of them? No, BS. <laughs> it, and you know, maybe. <laughs> that would be funny if BS was one of them. <laughs> did, did any uh, stand out to you? Uh, uh, nah, not really. I, I want to see what your opinion was. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, um, I think I think they could have dropped a couple of them that were a little BS, and it would have been a fine article regardless. Yeah. Um, they probably just sat around and brainstormed a ton of, and just and like, you know, look on the whiteboard. What can we make an acronym? Yeah. Oh wait, that's what we do at Macrofab Engineering. WB whiteboard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not Warner Brothers. <laughs> Ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I think I talked about that one. Um, oh, oh, yeah. EP. What does EP stand for? Extended play. I knew you would say that. <laughs> uh, no, engineering prototype, according to them. Is it really harder to say engineering prototype? Like, are you saving time and effort and money by shortening that to EP? No, because I bet you if you, te- if you emailed someone, I oh, yeah, I just got that EP from blah, blah, blah. They'd be like... What? Because they probably would actually probably think EP extended play vinyl, um, and you then you'd have to send another email like, oh yeah, engineering, uh, you know, prototype. Yeah, engineering prototype. I even forgot what that meant. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so you, it actually wastes more time in that regards. And you I, have to explain most so much. of these unless do. unless unless in your signature and your emails you link this article. <laughs> so they have to go and research yeah. it. So it's like it's like going to um uh what's that website? Um Urban Dictionary to find a new lingo that kids are using oh, that says. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, it's we the same thing. 
<laughs> I actually, What's the lingo that engineers are using? I went to Urban Dictionary today to read what their uh, what their definition of tubular was. Oh yeah, I tweeted that today. Yeah. <laughs> I, so so I think I'm going to be talking to our um, shipping manager uh, now all about um, LTL. Every one of our shipments is an LTL now. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Not when we got the uh, um, the machines in. We had actually three trucks bring oh, yeah, our, that's, our that's, my, my that's data machines. That's a BTL right there. Yeah. Was it? Uh, was that BTL? Bigger than truckload. Bigger than truckloads. Or <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, what? Just a T? Uh, what? Uh, a TTL. Three truckloads. Three truckloads. Yeah. A TTL or, or logic. Yeah, or or logic. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, good article. We'll yeah. put the link in 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 the blog post. Um, I'll let, I'll let you do this next one. Okay, yeah, yeah, because because I, I have uh, okay. So actually, let me preface this: we talk a lot about data sheets and we talk a lot about connectors. Yeah, and how bad they are. Because there's a lot to say. Yeah, a lot and I, to say. And 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 I have a data sheet PSA for for everyone who is willing to listen here. So connectors that have more than one part. That is inherent to the connector. So like um, like pins that have to go into the connector that you have to solder to the wires or crimp to the wires. Yeah, if you have to crimp one of the wires and plug them in there. Or if you have like a little uh, holder that clips into it or, or anything. If, or even farther is um, like the male end to the female connector. What actually does fit into that connector? Right. Yeah? So so here's the PSA. If, if it requires more than one item... Put the damn information on the data sheet. <laughs> the, the part number? The, the, the part number, give me, even a picture would be good. I, I was looking for a connector uh, uh, just, just the other day for a customer. The customer gave me information on what he wanted, but it wasn't directly specific, and I found what was necessary, but I found the male and female shell of the connector, but it needed a clip-in part, and it needed a socket, and it needed a pin, but it didn't tell me which one got which clip, which one got what what pin, which one got what soccer. The data sheet was just here's the dimensions of this plastic shell. I'm like, thanks, <laughs> great. I literally had to go to Google and do a Google image search and find people who had these and figure it out from what, what parts you actually what needed. parts I needed. And finally, I was like, okay, so this one takes the pin, this one takes the clip, this one takes the socket. It was terrible. Put the information on the data sheet. Um, the best ones are, or the best data sheets for this kind of stuff, are when they do a uh, a family data sheet for yeah. that connector, uh-huh. and then you get all that information. Yeah. Um, please do that, connector companies. A little note that just says this part mates with this part number. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Thank and you. uses these conductors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How often will we talk about connectors? Every it's, other podcast. Every, pretty much. <laughs> that, that actually shows that we deal with connectors pretty often. A lot. Yeah. A um, lot. Then Amazon earlier this week <laughs> released a uh, an IoT programmable button for developers. Hmm. And okay. I'm actually thinking about trying to get some of these for Macrofab because we do a lot of IoT stuff. Yeah. Uh, reluctantly sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing we talk about a lot. A lot, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so... Um, I think it was last year or the year before that, Amazon released these buttons that you can put on on stuff, I guess, and you can press them and it would automatically order stuff for you. 
like, like toilet paper like toilet paper so you'd have a button next to your uh toilet and if you ran out of toilet paper you'd press the button and automatically put an order in for toilet paper and it would show with up amazon prime now you'd have to wait an hour <laughs> yeah when i wonder if they could come in, if you can make like <laughs> if you press that button like it printed out a key for them so they can come in your house and hand it to you too <laughs> Can it be called the oh shit button? Oh shit button. <laughs> we need to make this. Well, we can now because they released a generic Amazon IoT button now. And, and what, do you just tie a product number to it? No, you, you actually get to program it. Oh, okay. So you can make it do anything, actually. It's basically a Wi-Fi enabled button. Okay. And you can make it, uh, you can press the button and you can make it you know, brew a pot of coffee if your coffee pot had Wi-Fi. Huh. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so it's really cool. Um, I haven't haven't looked too much into it. I saw that today, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to see how much they cost, how much a development platform costs for it. See if we can get some at MacFab. Yeah, that's cool. Um, really cool idea. I really like it. Uh, it's one of those... I bet you, I actually kind of want to get one and tear it apart. I bet you someone's already done a teardown. I want to see what kind of hardware is in there. Because mm. I bet you it's probably like an ARM Cortex M0. Which is probably actually way overpowered <laughs> for what this thing does. It, I, it I pulls a button and sends it over Wi-Fi. <laughs> well, okay, so let, oh, once, we've, um, once we see how much it costs, then we can make a, uh, a judgment on what's inside. Because if it's like five bucks oh it might have somehow they got a wi-fi stack to fit in like a tiny eight it uh eight bit mcu yeah yeah something something crazy yeah maybe well they also amazon's really good at the uh scale of costs mm. they're very good at, at reducing costs by scale so is that is that a jargon word in in bolt probably scale of cost scale of cost soc soc system on chip yes it's on chip <laughs> <laughs> anyways i think it's cool um, I'll see if we can get some for Macrofab. Awesome. And this is going to be on you. Yeah. So uh, I saw on Hackaday there's a there's a cool article about the uh, the Monster 6502. Uh, basically, um, the 6502 was a, a CPU in the gosh, I guess it was late 80s. No, uh, no, early, uh, mid to late 70s. Mid to late 70s. Wow. Yeah, because it one. was the the cut down version, the 6507. Yeah. Was in the Atari 2600. Yeah, and the right. difference between those two chips was this: the 07 had less address lines. It oh, was a smaller it? package. Okay, okay. So um, this processor uh, was in a lot of. Um, it was in the Apple II. It was in the Commodore 64. A uh, a version of it was in the original Nintendo yes. system, a modified version. A whole decade later. Right. Right. Yep. Well, it was tried and true. Yes. Know? At that point, they. It's actually interesting. Back in the day, they would. CPU technology didn't develop that quickly back then. Like right. the 6502 architecture was used for a long time um, without any significant upgrades. They did change from um, uh, NOS-style uh, semiconductor to CMOS. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a big leap. That's a big leap because you, you drop power a lot on that leap. Mm -hmm. um, basically, the difference in that is, is NOS is basically N-channel only. Right. Transistors, so you almost have double of the amount of stuff. Right. Where CMOS is both N-type and P-type. Right. Um, and CMOS is smaller. 
Yes. But anyways, the yeah. interesting thing about this this monster is it's all NOS style. So it's all N-type. Yep. <laughs> or well, NPNs. And and even more interesting, a gentleman has gone out and made a discreet based uh, board yes. that is a, a one-to-one copy of the 6502. One-to-one with, I'm sorry, a few small changes. Yeah, I'm actually surprised how tiny it is. It is 12 inches by 15 inches. Yeah, that, it's a lot smaller than I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah. Well, it has 4,000 individual, well, a little bit over 4,000 individual components on it. Like 3,900 of those or something, something in that range are transistors themselves. 293, uh, 3904s probably. <laughs> yeah, so something like that. Whatever Some they could jelly get. bean transistor. Yeah, and they were they were talking about cost of this thing because that's obviously the first thing that came to my mind. It's like, oh my gosh, really? And And he said... It's above one thousand and below five thousand. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's a true maker right there. Yeah, yeah. Where you're not too worried about the cost. You just have a ballpark. Actually, what I think is uh, probably even more true to the maker thing. Somebody has asked him if it comes in kit form, and, and of course, kit form. Oh, yeah, well. kit form. If you think about a transistor, three legs, and then resistors, two legs, you have you know ten thousand plus pins to solder on something like this and and uh, his response was great I, it, it was uh, uh anything can come in kit form yeah. you know if, 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 <laughs> if you, you try hard willing. enough <laughs> yeah if you try hard enough anything is kit form um but it's all surface mount though right yep surface mount dual side it's actually only four layer board that's um, not bad so, so it's I'm, probably ground power signal signal yep on the outsides yep. and and apparently he wrote some kind of scripts to help with the the layout uh, you know, probably just like step and repeat kind of scripts, yeah. things like that. That would make sense. Um, can you do that in Eagle, actually, as a ULP? Yeah, you, there's a couple of ULPs out there that you can um, step and repeat nets and stuff. Okay, yeah, I'm sure. Y- yeah, he probably did something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, cool. yeah, it's cool. I mean, just to be able to... I've always geeked out on those things, being able to see it like that. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool project. Yeah. And then there was a... Uh, 6502 emulator you showed me today. Yeah, so th- that's actually been around for a bit longer. In fact, this, this emulator, this website, uh, has a graphical representation of the die of a 6502. And you can press play and watch it run through its commands and see every single line in that thing. Yeah, and that's a visual6502.org? Yeah, I believe that's it. Yeah, I got it right here. Okay, yeah, yeah. And we'll, <laughs> we'll post the link up. Uh, super cool if you nerd out on this stuff, and 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 on top of that, like it shows all the layers, and you can peel them away. So if you want to look at just the metal layer, if you want to look at just the polysilicon layer, you can see each individual uh, layer. It's it's just a total nerd fest. Yeah, you were you were I can't remember which layer you're looking at, but it was like pulsating like back and forth. It was almost like uh, like you were list like trance music background stuff. Oh yeah, it would make a perfect background to a uh, uh, electro dance beat. Or in, in like a rave or something like you put it up on a wall. Yeah. <laughs> and really, you could put that up there. No one would know what it is except you're, you're the one guy in the audience who's like, yeah, that's a 6502. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, the last RFO, it's not really a, uh, a news article or anything, but I saw a, a uh, interesting comment or post on the Arduino subreddit. Uh-huh. And it was uh, hardware or software debouncing for switches. What do you prefer? Um, honest opinion? Yes. Both. Both? I was going to say both, but which one? If you could pick one, what would you do? Software. 
you know what's really funny? We're both hardware guys, and we pick software. <laughs> um, because it requires... It's cheaper. It's it's cheaper, and it's more direct. You don't have to deal with tolerance. Yeah, you, you don't deal software. with tolerances, and uh, you basically have to add two components to each switch. Mm -hmm. You have to add a cap and a... Basically, a low-pass filter, yeah. a cap and a resistor. Um, like what would be like 100 ohms and probably a 0.1 microfarad. That'd probably make a pretty good low pass filter. Well, okay, so you you can always shotgun it. You can you can do the math and find your time constants and do all that kind of crap. The thing that's great about software is if it doesn't work, you type in another number and press reprogram and give it another shot <laughs> instead of having to pull out a breadboard and, yeah, and do yeah, all yeah. this stuff. I, I get lazy when it comes to that kind of stuff. I'd rather do software. Yeah, and do I've software. had better success with software debouncing than hardware. than hardware. Yeah, I've actually had the same like that too. It's also we, cheaper. Yeah. Um, well, it depends on what you say cheaper, because it does consume more cycles, but... Yeah, I guess. It, you say it, consume, it consumes more CPU cycles, but it takes the same amount of time constant time. Because that hardware, like, the hardware debounce is basically going to make a an RC circuit with a roll-off. Yeah. And so it's going to have a, instead of having a sharp transition that bounces back, you can have this nice, uh... I'm going to say rounded square wave. <laughs> um, so you're going to have that surrounded square wave, but in that same rounded square wave time, you're basically going to sample your pin twice to see if it's still high. So it takes the same amount of physical time. It just takes more CPU time. Well, and, and but does it really, it only takes like one more It only takes a comparison on your CPU, on your a MCU. comparison, but you have to write and run a delay command, a function. Well, if you do it that way, which is the worst way. <laughs> um, so, the, well, how I like to do software debouncing is you record an old value. Yeah. And then when you run it again, you run like an interrupt for it. So you're not waiting for a time period. So your interrupt happens again and you read your IO again and then compare that to the old value. If if a if a uh, if you're saying one is a switch has been pressed, sure. and so if it's been pressed for both of those time periods, that's a press. That's that's, that's a valid. And so it takes less computational time. It just takes one more interrupt cycle. Sure. It depends on if you want to just pull if in your main loop or if you want to have an interrupt snagging things. Yeah. It, it one's easier, one's harder. One takes more time. One takes whatever. I, the my main thing is with doing uh, hardware debouncing is it just takes more physical layout on your board. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. I wonder if a 10K .1 microfarad would be a good RC circuit. Because that's like a part... Those are two parts you use everywhere on, your, on, on like a digital layout. Mm -hmm. And if those would work for a debounce circuit or switch. Because then that way you're not adding any real cost to your board. Yeah. I.e. different skew numbers, whatever. Eh, we'll check. Hmm. I think that would probably work. It'd probably be a really slow roll-off, though. Comparison. Yeah, well, it would It would be worth experimenting, especially if it was... Um, like, let's say this was going into a medical device, and it had to work 100%. You'd you have might to do spend, both. Yeah, well, I, I would absolutely do both in a situation like that, but I would, I would take the time and actually... Measure record it. it, measure it, save my waveforms, you know, all that kind of stuff. It just, I don't know, it just takes a lot of time. Yeah, it takes a lot of time. Software is easier for that stuff. Oh, yeah. And that is the end of the RFO section. Is there anything you want to add to this podcast, Stephen? No, I think that's, I think that's pretty good. And this is uh, episode 16. 
So we've been at this for four months. Four months, really? Straight. Been that long? Wow. Yeah. Started in February. Cool. Yeah, so I guess that's going to be, uh, we're going to be signing off from the MacFab Engineering Podcast. <laughs> I got a little giddy there, I yeah, guess. Just a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Catch y'all next time. Take it easy.